You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. Good morning. If you turn your Bible to John 17, we're going to be in the last seven verses of John 17 this morning. Thank you, Zach. And our little band ensemble for leading us uh, in worship this morning. And thank you, Chase, for such a powerful um, song as we prepare our hearts for the first advent and as we celebrate the, the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, as Aaron reminded us, this is Lottie Moon season and uh, the gospel is going to places you and I will never go. And yet those people need the gospel as badly as you needed the gospel. And, and so we have responsibility. Uh, we're not the ones who are going to accomplish the great commission God is, but he uses human agency. And so pray that the IMB will reach their goals and that that. Lakeview will be a, a significant player in, in that contribution. Let me pray for us. We will get into our passage. Father, thank you. Uh, as we have just been summoned through song, that we can behold you because of the first advent and what Jesus accomplished in the first advent and because of the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Father, as we consider this passage today, may we behold you. Lord, that's our greatest need. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Stephen Nissenbaum, in his book, The Battle of Christmas, teaches us that in New England, for the first two centuries of the European settlement, most people did not celebrate Christmas. Matter of fact, the holiday was intentionally suppressed by the Puritans during the colonial period, and in the main, by their successors, by their descendants. It was actually illegal to celebrate Christmas in Massachusetts from the years 1659 to 1681. In fact, it was only in the mid-19th century did Christmas gain legal recognition as a as a, an official public holiday in New England. As one New Englander uh, wrote, even as late as the year 1850, the courts were in session on that day. The markets were open. And I doubt if there had ever been a religious service on Christmas Day unless it were Sunday. And as late as the year 1952, one writer recalled being told by his grandparents that New England mill workers risked losing their jobs if they arrived late to work on December the 25th. And that sometimes the factory owners would change the starting hours of work on Christmas Day to as early as five o'clock so that the workers who wanted to attend church services on that day would have to forego those services or be dismissed from their jobs. 
Now, what accounts for this negative view of Christmas? Well, first of all, the Puritans argued that there's no way that you can make a biblical case that Jesus was born on December 25th. Nor was he born in December. And they would appeal to Luke's account of the, of the shepherds in the field when the angels appeared to the shepherds. And the, the shepherds were in the field. They were living in the field shepherding uh, the flock. And in cold December, the shepherds didn't live outside. And so they made the argument there's no way Christmas was in the cold month of December. Jesus was not born in December. But the Puritans had another reason for suppressing Christmas. Um, in that day, it was an agrarian culture. This was the pre-industrial age. And in December, the cold months, they took a pause from work. And so they had this discretionary time. It was a season of leisure. Because it was a season of leisure, that's when they made their beer and their wine for the rest of the year. And so they had all this beer and this wine. And then, remember, this was before refrigeration. This was when the animals were slaughtered because you could actually uh, eat the animals. You could kill them without any worrying about any kind of disease because it was cold enough to keep them. And so you had plenty of food, plenty of alcohol, and it became a big, uh, excessive celebration. It was a celebratory, excessive time uh, in that culture. In fact, one Puritan pastor, Cotton Mather, put it this way in 1712. The feast of Christ's nativity is spent in reveling and in all licentious liberty by long eating, by hard drinking. In other words, December festivities were rooted in popular culture and the church, by assigning Jesus' birthday to that month, was tacitly agreeing to, uh, to allowing the Christmas holiday to be celebrated in that way. Well, Given the fact that it's highly unlikely that Jesus was born on December the 25th, it's highly unlikely that he was actually born in December. Is it wrong to celebrate the first advent? Well, certainly not. In fact, there's everything right about celebrating the first advent, whether we know the exact date of when he was born or not. For if we're not for the first advent, all the truths that we have seen promised to us in the gospel of John would be untrue. We would not have any way of the new birth were it not for the first advent. Um, as John has already made clear in John 17, uh, the revelation of God the Father would not have been made known through the Son were it not for the first advent. Uh, we would not have been able to cross over from death to life were it not for the first dead night. We would no, not know the Messiah is the light of the world or the bread of life or the living water were it not for the first advent. We would not know that he is the resurrection and the life or that he is the door to the Father or the good shepherd or the true vine or the way, the truth, and the life were it not for the first advent. In fact, the truth that we have seen Jesus praying in John 17 would be untrue were it not 
for the first advent. In fact, last time we saw that he has prayed that we would have peace and joy in the midst of a fallen and broken world under the ruler of this age. He has prayed that we would be kept from the evil one. That's what he is praying for, and that's why the first advent is so important for us. It's why it's right to celebrate Christmas. In fact, in John 17, we have seen that it's broken down into three parts. In the first five verses, Jesus prays for himself as the great high priest. And what do we see there? That Jesus prays that the, the glory that he had before the foundation of the world would be restored to him as he has accomplished the work that Jesus or the Father has given him to do. In John 17, 6 to 19, he prayed for the, the disciples of that day, the present believers of that day. And he has prayed that they would have joy, that they would be kept from the evil one. And today, we come to the third part of this, this prayer where he prays for you and me. He prays for all the future followers and disciples of Christ. It was the 16th century theologian, David Chaitreus, who appears to be the first one to label this prayer as Jesus' high priestly prayer. It certainly reflects the three stages in the ministry of the Jewish high priest before they offered up the sacrifice for atonement for sins. The, the high priest would first of all pray for himself. He would make intercession for himself. And then he would pray for his fellow priest, his colleagues. And then he would pray for the entire nation. It's the same order, the same pattern that we see here in John 17. We've come to that third part of the prayer where he prays for all of God's people, past, present, and future here. So if you're a Christian this morning, if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you can be encouraged that just before the cross, Jesus was praying for you. That's deeply encouraging. He is praying for you, and God answers all of his prayers. The first thing we see here is that Jesus prays that believers would be one. Look with me in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, that is the present disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And so here is the order. Look back in verse 18. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Okay, so Jesus sends his disciples into the world as the Father sent him. And Jesus knows that the word that saved his disciples will be the very word that saves all future believers. And this reminds us during this first Advent season that the greatest issue in life is what will you do with the word of Christ? What will you do with his gospel? Now, the one who refuses to respond to his word, to his gospel word, is not morally neutral. 
no matter how bright and shiny your social conventions might be. You may have been taught to be mannerly and courteous by your parents, and and you've been taught to contribute to your community. But if you have not responded to this word, you are not morally neutral. You are in rebellion to the king. That's spiritual treason. There's nothing neutral about that. In fact, John 5, 24 gives us, by way of implication, the the consequences of that. In John 5, 24, he says, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. So if you have not trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, you do not have eternal life. You have eternal judgment. And he goes on and says, this person has passed over from death to life. So you're still on the side of the shore called death. That is the consequence of refusing to bow the knee to King Jesus. Well, we see here in this passage that not only is this person not neutral, this person is in rebellion, but for those who do respond to this message, how does he pray for them? Now, it's kind of surprising how he prays for us what's on his heart, but this reminds us how important what he prays for here is to the mission. And this really gets at the heart of why corporate life is so important for believers. Now, I realize there are shut-ins, and we, we're trying to do a better job of ministering to our shut-ins because our shut-ins are as important as anybody here. But if you are not legitimately a shut-in, and you are legitimately not providentially hindered from attending corporate worship, it's sin. It's sin. Uh, there's, no, there's nothing in the Bible about a churchless Christian unless you are legitimately providentially hindered from being with the people of God. We see here how important corporate life is. Notice with me in verse 21. He says... That they, now this is, this is plural. We tend to individualize things as American Christians, but this is corporate. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. So he is about to be arrested, He's about, to be, he's about to go through six trials. He's about to be hung on a cross. And he's praying for us. And of all things he prays for, he prays for unity, that we would be one. And that this unity is modeled on the unity that Jesus enjoys with the Father. In fact, I believe that's why the devil's central method in destroying churches is through the method of division. Because this is the the premium that Jesus places on unity. Just before the cross, he's praying for unity. Now, in fact, it's so important that he states it three times. You see it there. 
that they may be one, verse 21, and then in verse 22, that they may be one, even as we are one, and then in verse 23, that they may be perfectly one. It's very important to Jesus. And so the church's unity is foundational to our identity. In fact, Paul will write in Ephesians 2.14 that unity is one of the accomplishments of the cross. He himself is our peace who has made the two one new man through his cross. And so unity is an accomplishment. Reconciliation is an accomplishment of the cross. And there is nothing in the world like this unity. Now, I, I grew up in a, in a locker room. I played 16 years of organized football. I was in 16 years of locker rooms. And there is a kind of unity in a football locker room. But that unity is, is a result of having a whole lot in common. When you're in a locker room, you're with guys that you have a whole lot in common with, okay? Uh, that's not the kind of unity that Jesus is speaking of here. He's speaking of disparate kinds of people who may not have anything in common but him. And he is enough. That's the kind of unity that he is referring to here. So all other expressions of unity that you may see with a military unit or a band or a ball team or a fan base, that's all superficial. It doesn't, that kind of unity does not require the Holy Spirit this kind of unity requires the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit. In fact, when you consider the churches of the New Testament, man, they were formed with all kinds of combustible materials. I mean, think about the church at Colossae. In the church at Colossae, they had slaves and freedmen. Think about that. Members of the church, some were free, some were slaves. They had barbarians, Scythians, they had circumcised people. They had uncircumcised people. Uh, just all kinds of different individuals roaming the halls of that church. Think about the church at Corinth. You had some in that church who believed they had the liberty to eat meat sacrificed to idols. You had others in that church who believed it was a sin to eat meat sacrificed to idols. How about the church that James addresses? You have very rich people you have very poor people. These were disparate groups, and yet there was unity. There was a call to unity. Uh, this is unity in diversity. Diversity in unity. And what that does, it, it amplifies the power of God. It demonstrates the oneness, but the plurality of the Godhead. That's why in Romans 15, in this remarkable passage, in verses five to seven, two different times the apostle Paul says that God gets glory through the harmony that comes as Christians live in one accord with each other. Just listen to this from Romans 15, verse six, that together you may with one voice Glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this union is grounded in the unity of the Godhead. We are imaging God 
as we are united to one another, as different as we might be. Paul will write in Ephesians 4, in fact. In fact, this was a passage that Brother Al preached. One of the best sermons I've ever heard anyone preach just before I came. There's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through and in all. Now it's striking here how, how the Apostle Paul links together the church's unity. One body, one hope, one faith and baptism with God's triune unity. One spirit, one Lord, that's referring to Christ, and one God and Father. Now, let's be clear there. Let's nuance this a bit. There are differing expressions of Christian unity. And so, being ordained as a pastor in, an, in a particular denomination requires a certain kind of unity. You need to know what you're getting, all right? If you come to, for instance, a, a Southern Baptist church or a PCA church, there's another kind of unity that requires of, of members, okay? There, there's a kind of unity that might be required for a, uh, a citywide prayer meeting. I'm not gonna have a prayer meeting with someone from a cult. I'm just not gonna do that. I don't have any unity with them. There's another kind of unity that's required for, for a, a conference, Okay, and so we have to nuance this a bit. And so we should have broader theological criteria for looser forms of partnership. Uh, Dr. R. Albert Moeller, I think, is very helpful here uh, with his theological triage. If you've ever been to a, an ER, uh, there's, a, there's a medical triage. So level one triage, you, that's a very serious matter. That might be a bullet hole to the chest, okay? A level two may be serious. It's not as serious as a level one. Maybe a, an allergic reaction to a bee sting. A level three is not dangerous. It just might be painful. Well, a few years ago, uh, I had an ear infection. And so Heather took me to the ER, not once, but twice in the same day. Um, I, that was not my best moment especially when I picked up a butcher knife and gave it to her and said, put me out of my misery. <laughs> but it was not a dangerous thing. It was just a very painful ear infection, okay? Well, doctrine is like that. So you got the level ones, you got the level twos and level threes. Level ones, you and I have to agree on, or at least one of us isn't saved, all right? The triunity of God, the person of Christ, fully God, fully man, one person. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Those are level one doctrines, okay? If you and I don't agree on that, we cannot be united. We, we have no union. Level twos are doctrines that are more at the denominational level, okay? So for Baptist, baptism by immersion upon one's conversion. We would not say that someone who believes in infant baptism is 
Not say. We would never say that. In fact, some of our deepest brothers and sisters in Christ are in the Presbyterian uh, church or even the Methodist church. But it's, it is significant enough for probably that we will not be in the same denomination or church. Then there's level threes. Level threes are doctrines that are not as significant so that if we disagree, we can even be on the same staff. I can guarantee you that on Lakeview's pastoral staff, we don't agree on everything, but we agree on the level ones and level twos. I would even add a level four. Level four is preferences. Preferences like worship style, okay? So can we establish this from scripture? Yes. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, three, that there are certain truths that are of first importance, First importance, that Christ was raised from the dead on the third day. That's a truth of first importance. And then you look in places like Romans 15 where he speaks about preferences. Some people esteem one day over another. So let's start here with what unity is not. Unity is not compromising the truth. It's never compromising the truth. D.A. Carson, unity is not achieved by hunting enthusiastically for the lowest common theological denominator, but by common adherence to the apostolic gospel. Indeed, Paul tells us that this unity is the unity of the spirit, and Jesus has reminded us time again that the spirit is the spirit of truth. And so unity is unity in the truth. This requires us to believe what the Bible says, all right? We must believe what the Bible says. It also requires us not to add to the Bible. A lot of times division comes because people are adding to the Bible. They're making their preferences or some convictions they form from being raised in a particular way. They're making that a test of fellowship. It's unwise and it's immature. Third, it requires us to discern, and this requires wisdom, non-essential and essential doctrines. Again, the classic saying, I think, that is helpful here is by the 17th century theologian Ruperus Meldinus, who said famously, in the essential, unity. In the non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, Charity. But why is this important, this unity? There's a variety of reasons for that, but let me just consider the one Jesus gives here, verse 21, the second part of verse 21. So that the world may believe that you sent me. Do you see that? Unity is important because it is a defense of the gospel. That the world may believe that you have sent me. So I want you to note the order here. First of all, we reflect the person of God or the union of God, the, the, the threeness, but the oneness of God, that they all may be one just as you, Father, and me, and I and you. And then that feeds production that the world may believe. So think about the people that are... God has providentially placed in your path that are difficult to love. 
You can't tell me they don't exist because that's such a central strategy that he uses, that he employs for teaching us how to love. Because when we're first saved, uh, our capacity to love is, is anemic, okay? And so he, he puts us through the exercises. He puts us through the workouts to teach us how to love. So think about that person. The natural thing to do is to ignore that person or to avoid that person. It may be someone here at church. You avoid them and you go out of your way not to have to talk to them. But would it change your mindset if you considered that the church's primary purpose or one of its purposes is to reflect the, the name, the person, the character of God through gospel unity, which means oneness and also differentiation. All right? So that person who rubs you the wrong way is God's strategy. Have you ever thought about that? It's not an obstacle. That person is God's strategy. I mean, think about this. Do small dumbbells amplify the strength of a, of a weightlifter? No. They don't amplify the strength of a weightlifter. And people who are easy to love, people who are just like you in echo chamber, that doesn't amplify the glory of the gospel. But the person that requires the Holy Spirit for you to love, that magnifies the worth and the glory of God. And when unbelievers see that, it's life-changing for them because they live a life of, of fractured alienation. But when they see people who have nothing in common but Jesus, it's a defense for the gospel. It's what Jesus is praying for here. And Jesus has resourced us, okay? He has given us re the divine resource to carry this out by mediating the glory of God to us. Notice in verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That is, he has mediated the glory of God, the perfections of God, the beauty of God to believers so that we can behold God through the mediation of the Son of God. Notice that they may even be one as we're one. So as we behold God, it perfects our oneness. Now, we have it theologically and positionally in Jesus, but we're still growing towards that as well. And so as we behold God, it grows our capacity to be one with each other. Here's how it works. Think about this. Paul Tripp said, uh, he speaks of going uh, to a, a particular country, uh, and, and he saw all of these remarkable um, skyscrapers, all right? But then he saw one skyscraper that was larger than all the other skyscrapers, and it put those, those others to scale. He was so in awe of this particular skyscraper that it made all the other skyscrapers look small. He beheld that, and it put everything else in its place. The things that cause problems in relationships is we make small things big. 
But when we behold God, it puts those, small, those things back in their place. Okay? So he has revealed the glory of God to disciples, to his disciples. And as we behold that glory, the things that used to bother us about each other are minimized. That's what he seems to be saying here, that they may be one. Think about this. Jesus' burden just hours from the cross is that his church will be his central evangelistic instrument and the unity that we have will play a major role in this. So the next time you're tempted to be divisive, remember, you are going against all that Jesus is praying for. All right? That's a bad place to be. Second thing we see here is Jesus prays that believers would be with him. We'll go through these quickly. Verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. You could say that the entire purpose of Jesus' first advent, the entire purpose of Christmas is communicated in this one verse. It's a verse that really does offer us great assurance. Assurance is one of the issues that every Christian contends with at some point. But this is one of those verses that promise us great assurance. Uh, Warren Wearsby, in fact, used to preach this verse often at funerals. Um, so how can the believer have assurance that he or she will spend eternity with God in Jesus Christ? Well, just consider the gospel as a whole, the gospel of John, because of the price Jesus paid. Uh, we're going to read in John 19 that he cried, it is finished. It is finished. He has made atonement for our sins once and for all. Every sin you have ever committed or will ever commit was paid for on the cross. It is finished because of the price that he paid. Secondly, because of the promise that he made. All the way back in John chapter 14, Jesus prayed, I, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. And so the price that was paid, but the promise that was made. And then finally, we see here in this passage because of the prayer that he prayed. Look at this. Verse 24 is a remarkable prayer. He is praying, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. We have seen this doctrine where God the Father gives the Son a people and he is praying for those that they would be with him. We have eternal security because of the prayers that Jesus prayed. But I want you to notice something remarkable here. Notice the main verb, I desire. Um, you could translate that I want. I want, I will I desire, the Greek word is stello. I give you that, and I'm going to show you why in just a second. You can spell it in English, T-H-E-L-O, thelo. Um, that is the word here when he says, I desire. 
in just a short time, maybe less than an hour, in Gethsemane, Jesus will pray in a different way using that very verb. That very verb. In Matthew 26, it says, verse 39, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will. There's the verb, Della. Not as I desire, not as I will, but as you will, as you desire. The same verb. Now, these two prayers seem worlds apart. John 17, verse 24, and Matthew 26, verse 39. But they are connected. And here's why. Jesus is able to pray as he does here. I desire that they will be with me because, because of what he will pray in the garden. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. He's gonna take the cross so that God can answer this prayer that we might be with him. You see, the greatest benefit of being a Christian is not the forgiveness of sins. Now, that is a benefit. In Psalm 103, it says, uh, the psalmist prays, um, forget not his benefits, who forgives all their iniquities. It's a great benefit. But perhaps an even greater benefit, and it is a greater benefit, that's just the fruit of what Jesus accomplished for us. It's being for all eternity in the presence of God through Jesus Christ. And that's why... Uh, the uh, 18th century uh, writer Samuel Rutherford once wrote this, Oh, my Lord Jesus Christ, if I could be in heaven without thee, it would be hell. And if I could be in hell and have thee still, it would be a heaven to me. For thou art all the heaven I want. It's a man who got what Jesus was saying in John 17, 24. And so we've seen Jesus prays that the believers would be one. He prays that believers would be with him. And then finally, in verses 25 and 26, as we conclude this prayer, he prays that believers would bear the love of God. Verse 25. Oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, that is, those who have not believed and will not believe. I know you, and these know that you have sent me. That is, the believers. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is such a key text for understanding the doctrine of sanctification, that is growth in godliness. Jesus, just before his arrest, is praying about the continuing manifestation of the Father's name to those who will believe. Again, notice, I will continue to make your name known. We are so dependent on that. And he does continue to make that known through his spirit and word. But this is such an important thing to grow in godliness, to pre be prepared for what he promised in verse 24. 
And what he promised in John 16 when he says, in this world you will have much tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. To be prepared for these things, what do we desperately need? We need the name of God. That is his character, his person, his perfections, his beauty to be continuously revealed to us, manifested to us. We need to behold God. And Jesus is promising here, I will continue to make your name known to those who will believe in me. That is a promise. That is a promise. Now, just look at this name. This is remarkable here as we close. He's righteous father. Now, here's the question. He is the eternal father to the eternal son. But he is also promised to be a father to those of us who would believe. How can he be both righteous and a father to the likes of us? In fact, we see that this love that he has for the son will be poured out on us. How can he be loving and gracious to the likes of us? When he is righteous, the fact is the reason the world does not know him is because they don't see him as righteous. Just ask the average person on the street. Do you believe you're going to go to heaven? Of course I'm going to go to heaven. They don't understand the righteousness of God. God's righteousness is perfect righteousness, which means his standard is perfect righteousness. So how can this God be both righteous and a father to the likes of us? It will require a substitute. It will require the Son of God. Indeed, that's what we celebrate in the first advent. Jesus is about to go to the cross so that this righteous God might adopt us into his family through the finished work of Jesus and by the gift of the Spirit. Think about this. The righteousness of God is bad news for us all. The righteousness of God is the standard that none of us can attain to, not one moment of our lives. But the righteousness from God is the gospel. And that's what Jesus is about to accomplish as he goes to the cross. He has fulfilled all righteousness, obeying in our place, and then he's going to go to the cross and he's going to be judged in our place so that God might be righteous and a father to sinners who would trust in the Son of God. And so let's go back to verse 24. Jesus before the cross is looking forward to being with us, but it's going to require him taking a cross to do so. So that, to use Luke's language, he might eat and drink with us at his table in the kingdom of God. It took the first advent to accomplish that. That's why we celebrate Christmas. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.